Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hello and welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm not Danny V. I'm R.A. Spratt and I've taken over her podcast. For those of you who have no idea who I am, I write novels for 8 to 12 year olds. I've written Friday Barnes, Nanny Piggins, The Pesky Kids and most recently, Astonishingly Good Stories. In fact, it literally came out today. Well, by the time you listen to this, it won't be today, but it'll be in stores, so rush out and buy it. I've also got my own podcast, Bedtime Stories with R.A. Spratt. Now, Danny said I could talk to whoever I liked today, so I did briefly consider having a one-sided conversation with the spirit of Jane Austen. But then I had a much better idea. I would talk to my friend, Tony. Tony Flowers is the illustrator of lots of fantastic middle-grade books, including Samurai vs. Ninja, Billy is a Dragon, Sora Street, and Ginny and Cooper, as well as picture books such as Advance Australia Fair, What the Raven Saw, and Hello!, But Tony is an iceberg of intrigue. The illustration is just the tippy-top of him, because 90% of what makes him fascinating is hidden below the surface. For a start, Tony knows way more than is normal about samurai armour and weaponry. Also, he almost became a doctor. No, not the exciting type that gets to hand out drugs. No, Tony almost got a doctorate in visual literacy, which is a field of study that is super fascinating, so we're going to talk about that in a moment. But anyway, let's get started. Here is my conversation with Tony Flowers. Let's get into it. Tony, hello. It's wonderful to see you. It has been way too long. How are you? I'm very good, Rachel. It is great to be here. It's I nice. mean, I, I feel super isolated in Barrel, which isn't far from Sydney, but how isolated do you feel all the way down in Tasmania? Uh, it's, a, it's a funny mix because whilst the world was all in COVID lockdown and everything was going crazy, we were still just sauntering around and had no great problems. Uh, so that kind of thing was great. Yeah. But we also felt quite isolated in that you didn't want to travel and you had that problem of if you did leave the state, you worried about not getting back in. Yeah. Very strict quarantine rules here, obviously, and because we didn't have huge COVID to start with in the community. But it has made things feel a bit more isolated and certainly with things like um, festival and speaking circuits, those type of things have not been going on over the last few years and that's where we, we get to meet everyone and, and chat and have our... I know it's been really lonely. It's what you you probably don't realize, like Tony and I, we both have the same publisher. We're both with Puffin, and what that means in practical terms, we've known each other for ten years. And um, Tony and I, we're very different people. We probably wouldn't have been thrown together by life if it wasn't for the fact that we had the same publisher. But we have ended up spending a lot of time in minivans together, <laughs> <laughs> and at festivals in minivans. You get 
driven anywhere in minivans. Uh, festivals and publishers are very cheap people who like to throw authors and illustrators in minivans. And if you spend a great amount of time in a minivan with people, you just can't help but get to know them. So we know each other pretty well from that. But are you doing um, more travel this year? Like Book Week is just a couple of weeks away for us now. Might be actually on when we're, this interview goes to air. But are you going to get out and visit some schools this year? I, I am. I've um, booked myself to go to Brisbane. Got such a good idea. Go somewhere warm. Why didn't I think of that? Come on, Rachel, get with the program. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's never occurred to me. I always go to Melbourne. No, <laughs> I'm an I'm, idiot. I'm an I idiot. Like, when I can, I like to plan a city and I go to the city. <laughs> <That's> so stupid. <laughs> so have you got a full five days in Book Week in Brisbane? Well, at the moment, I've got four days and I've only got the Friday still free, but I haven't really ramped up my promotion on that at the moment. But coming up to Book Week, so it should be no problem. Oh, I, I was I was planning a two week tour. I was going to do um, Coffs Harbour to Noosa. That was my plan. Oh, will you take your motorbike? Because just so you know, Tony has like a really cool Triumph motorbike, and a really he's doing up a Volkswagen Beetle that he's been spray painting yellow. You should totally follow Tony on Instagram so you can see pictures of his illustrations, but also the cool things he does and photos of his dogs. What, what's yeah. your handle on Instagram? Is it Tony Flowers, at Tony Flowers? Uh, it should be Tony Flowers underscore 99. Yeah, you should look him up because when we talk about his illustrations, then you can see the illustrations. So look him up now, although don't hang up on the podcast, obviously. <laughs> so, But that's really cool. Would you do like a road trip from up the coast? I was going to do a road trip up the coast, but um, I had a few inquiries when I first put onto my speaking agency that I was going to do Brisbane, asking if I'd go south of Byron. Uh, and there was a few schools that were flood effect, and I thought it'd be really cool. But I opened it up, but unfortunately, um, I didn't have enough uh, bookings at that time to be able uh, to booking alive because you know what it's like. It costs a lot of money to go touring, especially yeah. So I had to make sure I had at least four days booking, but I didn't get that at this stage. And I probably would have come through, but I didn't want to risk it. So yeah, and you don't want to have to gouge the schools to make it work financially. No. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to Adelaide just for two days, and I. It was just one school, but but you but and I said they I can't that's not going to work unless I charge too much, and they just said well quote and we'll see if they'll pay it, and they they you know it's it's you feel bad about charging schools what it actually costs. I'm still not going to make much money out of it, but you think there's the airfares, there's the hotels, there's getting to and from the airport. It yeah. really adds up. Yeah, sure I mean, I, yeah. so I, it works out. I mean, the through the speaking agency, but I get a little bit extra than I put out but only a tiny bit yeah but considering that's also i i have a i have a regular job since i spoke yeah so that's my holiday time so time without my family instead of time that i could be with my family on holidays and things like that so yeah, yeah. You've got to I think, all that up. yeah i think people don't get that the the, the time away from your holiday from your family is so draining and because we have to do so much of it and people think oh I'd love to have like a couple of days away from my family it'll be fun and like that's true like for the first three days but when you have to do it for like 50 nights a year year after year it, it you don't enjoy it yeah. yeah um so what's your regular job is it teaching or yeah um last year I started uh, teaching to the applied design degree at the University of Tasmania so I am now an academic you are an academic. That's super cool. So what what subjects do you literally teach? Like what is, what's the names of the subjects? The two units I look after are design aesthetics, which is looking at the visual language of design and how we communicate visually. And then design thinking, which is how we think about creative problem solving and how we apply that to 
different situations, and it might be designing an object or designing a book, but it could also be designing a system for a hospital or a public space. It's just a oh. weird, out there, creative way of thinking. That is so, so cool. Yeah. Yeah, because you get like a consultants in business. I can't remember the name of the consultancy where they, like a friend of mine, he like uh, composes symphonies and stuff and he's got a his he's got an advanced degree in philosophy but he got hired as a business consultant because they wanted people who think differently to come into their business organizations and and just like have challenge the way they 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 have assumptions about their structures so the idea of getting someone who is an illustrator to come in and look at the way you think about things is actually not such a crazy idea Although, obviously, you don't think that because you teach it. <laughs> oh, I think it's kind of crazy that I do it. But, hey, I don't go in and talk to businesses that much, but it's one of those things we teach as a part of that process. And it's a, I think it's, sort of, it's a really fascinating thing, and it grew out of what I was doing for the PhD, which I didn't end up completing, but um, where I was looking at um, how... You've got to make up a story about why you didn't finish, like... You, you you slept with your the person who and you know there was a big fiery debate or or you were thrown out because you were too contentious you, you can't just like say oh I didn't complete it you've got to go I didn't oh. complete it because well, well I got into, say I got that into a pistol because trip. of because of the legal because of the court case still pending you can't say anything more about it that's another good one yeah it would be nice uh, the honest truth is life got in the way yeah. I mean, I, I learned everything I needed to from the PhD, which I loved, and I went and spoke to some really generous people who are generous with their time, and that's feeding into some of the academic work I, I've done. So I spoke to uh, seven of Australia's leading illustrators and authors, illustrator authors, uh, people like Stephen Michael King and Graham Bass and Freya Blackwood, uh, Gus Gordon, you know, a wonderful collection of people who opened up their studios to me. And in, in that time, we were really looking at um, how illustrators approach the process of creating story through their pictures, what they think about while they're doing it. So it's an extension of design thinking, but for narratives. And it was great. I loved doing it. But I got busy with publishing contracts and then teaching at university. And then, unfortunately, I had some illnesses with my oh, yeah. family members. So life got on top of things. So uh, it didn't become the priority that it was. The thing I find, too, with um, extending your education uh, like master's degrees and PhDs, it's like the idea is appealing because of the status with that label. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it should be about the learning and what you know and what you share about what you know. And I find with what I do, I am just learning so much every day and there is no label or status that goes with that. But do I need the label and status? I would rather have the knowledge. I don't know. That's what I think. Haven't you already got the label of world famous, amazing, fabulous author? Yes, I have that. But but if it was Doctor World Famous, <laughs> a stat, fabulous author, that would be even better. Well, it's funny because you know I'm I'm a bit of a nerd, as you probably know. So a Doctor Who fan, but I was always a fan of the Master more than the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all right because I already have my Masters, so you know you can call me Master if you like. <laughs> yes. Well, the Italians have the best names because if you become a professor in Italy, and, and I think they call all their teachers professor. I could be wrong, but I don't believe in finding out actual facts. I think just finding a fact that is fun and then just refusing to is, is, is better because I'm a creative writer. But I believe all their teachers are called professors, but female professors are called professoressa. So mm. I would like to be Professoressa Spratt. You and you 
You should apply to a university in um, in Italy and try and get an honorary doctorate. <laughs> oh, I would be so. I should have gone to university in Italy because you know they don't do written exams; they oh. do verbal exams. Like what do they call it? Um, something voce. But anyway, um, I would have been so much better at that. I was so bad at essay writing at university. It really held me back because you really should be able to write essays at university level. <laughs> but I digressed all the time, and that's not what they want. <laughs> Well, let's put a call out there to any, any Australian university that wants to give you an honorary doctorate, please contact Rachel now. Yes, yes. Although honorary doctorates, they don't really count, do they? They just give them to Taylor Swift so she'll come to their speech tonight. Yeah, no. they're going to want you there. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think so. Not even not even my own children like listening to me speak. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> so the visual literacy stuff I find so fascinating because for me that's one of the things that people – they don't appreciate the importance of it. So can you just explain what it is and why it's important for children to develop visual literacy? Well, visual literacy is um, our ability to read images, so how we read and decode images, which is, uh, you know, we, we look at a picture and we can understand what's going on. But like true literacy, if I was to say you're a fully functional literate adult because you can read a headline on a newspaper, that doesn't make you fully functionally literate because you've also got to be able to construct words in a way that makes it um, your ideas understood. So for true visual literacy, you have to not only be able to read the images, but you also need to know how to organise images or signs and symbols and marks so that you can communicate in images. And it's um, a really important thing. It's a bit like we, we all learn in school that so much communication is done non-verbally, as in body language is really important, all sorts of other factors of intonation and tone become important when you communicate. Visual literacy is one of that sort of gamut of non-verbal communication. And we can communicate whole stories and narratives without writing a word. Words are overrated. Oh, yes, I agree. <laughs> I would like to have a, be in a position where I could write less of them. Um, <laughs> no, I love, I mean, as you know, I like I am, um, I, I wouldn't even say I was an aspiring illustrator. I know I'm not good enough, but I, I am fascinated with it. And I, I do like drawing, so I do draw for fun. Okay. Um, oh, that's actually, I, I, I've never interviewed anyone before, so my thoughts are all over the place. But I did want to just ask you, this is this is on my list of questions. I literally have a list. Yeah, do, you, do you, like, obviously you are a professional illustrator and you're teaching all this illustration and visual literacy type of stuff. Do you still draw for fun? I do. Uh, yeah, I I actually segment my day because as an illustrator, you've got to work out how to work from home and pace yourself and do your own sort of thing and hit deadlines. Plus, I've got all the teaching commitments. So I have to work out how to segment my day and pretty much every morning starts in a coffee shop. It's a hiring life as an illustrator uh, where I sit down for about an hour and I draw. And that might be for book project or projects coming up or just for the sheer fun of it. Um, and I approach my drawing in a way that is when I need to do structural analytical work to see where my story is or if it's up to standard, that's a different mindset to when I'm actually creating the drawings. When I'm creating the drawings, I try and forget the rules and just have fun and draw and react to the page and play with characters. So I, I draw all the time for fun. And also um, a lot of the process of drawing is that problem solving, that design thinking we're talking about. And I love problem solving. So it's like, oh, how would it look if the character went here? How would it look if the character went there? You want to see something very quick go through this morning? Yes, that'll be great for the people listening at home. <laughs> yeah. For those just... at home that, that don't want to turn on a video, uh, 
so this morning I was toying around with a few different ideas that I'm writing. So when I, I write, it looks really messy. It looks like this. Okay, so it looks a bit like Leonardo da Vinci's notebook, but with with scary monsters all over it. Because I thought, yeah. oh, vampires, vampires are fun. What vampires are there? And I started looking up vampires yeah. around the world and then looking at all the different types. So I just do that and draw these fun little characters, and those characters draw, sort of take on a life of their own. And sometimes I do things like I was in um, Melbourne recently, and I love a little place called the Luau Bar, if anyone ends up in Little Collins Street. It's like this weird little throwback tiki bar. Nice. So I, I, there's some pictures on my Instagram where I just sat down and started drawing my cat and I was going, wow, how would my cat react if it was in this place? And I sat there sipping on my um, mojitos and being, you know, coconut-fueled rum things being put in front of me. And I just kept drawing and painting through the night when I sat there. And I drew this whole little sequence of a story, but it, it came out of just no intention to draw a story. It just came out of fun. All yeah. that story. That's fantastic. The thing I find with illustrating, I don't have patience. Like I can draw quickly, but I don't have the patience for, like you have such beautiful um, detail. Like I, I'm thinking of Tony did this really fantastic picture of cats dressed up like Vikings and they're lit by a, a torch in front of them. And it's amazing. It's an amazing drawing. I think you can see it if you look on his Instagram. And the, the work that must have gone into that, it's just huge. Uh, whereas I, when I draw, do these very fast sketches and, and I like to do cartoons and I get bored just replicating it once and it takes five minutes. Like how, you, how much time would it take to do a drawing like that? And do you not get bored when you're doing the endless detail of like the armour and the whiskers and stuff? Let's see if I've got, do I have one just here? Here, I'll grab, grab one from up here. Okay, he's obviously expects me to edit this sound file later. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm not going to. Yeah, edit. it's it's not yeah. going to happen. So, so that's a- very cool. That looks like a character from Game of Thrones with like arrows and a quiver. And is it a is that a dog? That's it looks quite- a bit like. Okay, <laughs> that's a that's a Harvinese dog. That's yeah. A- that's that's John Flanagan who did Ranger's Apprentice. That's his dog. Oh, you did. Oh, that's so cool. So it's the Ranger's Apprentice's dog dressed as the Ranger's Apprentice. That's just the Ranger's Apprentice. That yeah. is very cool. And I like how you've got it. You didn't send it to him. <laughs> did you have a fight? Did you do it for him as a present? And then you had a fight with him and like, you're not getting that, John. It's too good. <laughs> I've got your dog now. Hand over all your royalties. Or you yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I sent him. A, I did send him something. That was just my... my- my dog is really hard to draw because he's got like long fur all over his face. So it just looks like you're drawing a lump of hair and he's got so much personality. It's really hard to express it because you can never see his eyes. Yeah, no, so your dog is great because it's corkscrewy hair. So that means yeah. what you do is you don't draw the dog, you draw the movement of the dog. That's what I was going to say, the movement. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. It's where the dog was half a second before you did the drawing is what you're trying to capture. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a, a mess in motion, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it. So very it's, cool. It's kind of, you know, that trying to catch that secondary motion rather than the, the primary position of the animal. Um, so a drawing like that is really complex and takes a long time, but I cheat. Because oh, my gosh, Tony. I cheat at everything. If I do a really simple drawing like a like a line, clean line drawing, like a samurai versus ninja drawing, um, you have to be precise and, if, and you know, I can draw them quite quickly, but if you get the lines in the wrong spot, it shows. Yeah. 
With a more complex drawing, you just keep drawing and you cover up the lines until you get the line you want. moves. And a a lot of the process is also um, technique-driven because I don't have to think about it. It's like if you're playing the guitar. You don't have to think about the chords you go through if if you're good at guitar. I'm not good at guitar, despite what's behind me. Yeah, uh, I've got yeah. I've got one behind me too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's it's you stop thinking about what you're doing and it, you just do. So I can actually be watching TV or listening to an audio book or a podcast or do anything, and I can be drawing without almost looking because it's just I have to fill in the space and the hand knows what to do. That's one thing I get very jealous with um, illustrators. Like I, I'm. Facebook friends with Robin Glass Plesser, who does the Fancy Nancy books. And I know she always listens to murder mystery audiobooks while she's illustrating, which is funny in itself because she writes, she illustrates these beautiful little illustrations of perfectly perfect, beautiful girl who loves to, you know, be very beautiful. But while she is doing these beautiful um, drawings, she's all the time listening to stuff about death and murder. Whereas when you're writing, like for me, I have to have a hundred percent concentration. I can't, I can't cope with any extra. Like I sometimes put in earplugs because even like my neighbor mowing the lawn will just, uh, so yeah, I am jealous that illustrators can just, they, they, they don't have to like cook their brain in quite the same way, but I'm sure there are other things that are equally as absorbing that do you get, do you get like brain melt from, from working so hard? Uh, well, sometimes I do, but generally I find if, if I'm reading a text, because I think is if you write the text and then you pass it off to the publisher, you've read through it and they've edited it and they've gone through it a million times and you know where it comes from, so you know all the subtle nuances that you're trying to build in. As the illustrator that picks up a text, you've got to go through and read the text and react to it. Then you've got to go through and read it again to dissect it. Then you've got to work out where the best parts are going to be to illustrate and how to bring it to life. You don't want to be watching TV or listening to your murder mystery at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's sort of the analytical phase. And when you're going through that and you're reacting and, and analysing, you do concentrate a lot. And, yeah, irritations and noise can be problematic. Um, but quite a lot of the time I like to um, put myself into noisy environments or put on noise to stop my brain thinking because it stops you judging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's, the, that's part of the patience thing, isn't it? Because if you're thinking too much, you can become impatient, whereas if you can relax... Yeah. Like, cause it, cause it can't, if you want to, if you're going to do it well, you want to be relaxed so that you take the time that is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean. <laughs> the Zen focus that we illustrators have that authors lack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let's talk about your Japanese stuff because that's the other like fascinating thing about you. As I seriously, you have so many, like we could talk about Volkswagen bugs for 20 minutes. I'd be quite happy. Oh, by the way, I took a photo of a Volkswagen bug for the other day. I met a guy at the Ding, Dingo Sanctuary at Bargo who yeah. had a black Volkswagen bug that he painted matte black. It looked so cool. So I'll send you the photo. It looked really <laughs> awesome because you're spray painting yours yellow. And I thought Tony could do a way cooler color. Uh-huh. Are you going to have go faster stripes on the side? No, mine was originally yellow. It's a 1961 Beetle. Yeah. And I picked it up as a project a few years back. And, and for, for the listeners, it uh, it just came up time for me to progress the project to try and get it ready for registration. And to do that, I needed to do some prep work on the inside, which was a bit of bodywork. So I thought I'd take it and get all the bodywork done at the same time. So it's it's been resprayed inside and out the same yellow. Yeah, a lot of the inside spray that looks stunning will get covered up by headliners and fabric. Yeah, but 
I'm having so much fun doing it. It's just yeah, it looks cool. great. Yeah, well, my, my, when I was a kid, my mum had a, a Volkswagen Bug and it was bright orange and it was so cool. And, like, you'd ring it because it was back in the old days, like, you'd be trying to get home and you'd find a payphone and it's like, oh, thank goodness, it'd be baking hot and you'd have your 20 cents you put in and you'd <laughs> ring mum. It's like, mum, can you come and get me? And she'd be like, oh, okay, fine. And you'd just be sitting waiting in the baking heat and then you'd hear the sound of that air-cooled engine and, and it would still be two kilometers away but it'd just be and, it's like, and you'd hear it coming towards you and so and that would, would just fill my heart with oh thank goodness my mom is coming to rescue me um yeah it was so loud and it was a semi-automatic so it had a stick but you didn't have to depress a clutch is yours like that no you have to definitely use the clutch on mine okay anyway so back to japan so yeah you you know a lot about Japanese uh, samurai armor and stuff. How did you get interested in all those things? Look, I've, I've been a Japanophile probably all my life. I, I was trying to analyze this a few years back when I was working on how come I became so fascinated by Japan. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I used to watch you know, Astro Boy and Kimber the White Lion and yeah. not realize that I was starting to be indoctrinated by Japanese culture. And then I, in the early 80s, I came across a movie called Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Studio Ghibli's first movie, so by Mihauza, and it's you know Spirit Away fame, and um, I just watched this thing and devoured it, and just loved the fact that there was an aesthetic there and a way of storytelling that was different from Disney and yeah, know, cartoons. It was a very different way of different sort of design sensibility, which I really liked. I wonder, you know, like with visual literacy, whether yeah, and you know how manga is huge, obviously in Japan. Whether they are a more visually literate culture because their alphabets are more stylized symbols, so so they are learning to look at, at detailed symbols uh, from a very young age. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to read and write. Do you think that would have an impact on that sort of um, visual yeah. literacy? Is it translating into other mediums? I should imagine it does. I mean, everything in Japan is just beautifully done. Yeah, if, if you if you get if you get like a um, a sushi roll, the way they wrap things up in shops is just amazing. It's like you don't need to gift wrap my food for me. If you if you walk around any city, like the municipal manhole covers, all have their own decorative finish. Yes, so denote the city, and there could be cherry blossoms, or it could be wave patterns. Um, you know, and there's just this um, visual um, sort of aesthetic that goes through the entire culture and it doesn't matter if it's modern or old it's it's stamped in there and i, I sort of got it I, I remember when i was younger there was um the mini series james clavell's shogun the, the yeah. adaptation of the book and i was fascinated by that as a kid you know i was probably middle high school or something when that came out or like primary i can't remember but it was um yeah, it was fascinating, just this this otherworldness, the exoticness of it all. But then I've been lucky enough, I've been there now five times. And uh, each time I go, it, you, know, you just fall in love with the place even more. And this, yeah. you get to build on the knowledge, which is really nice. So specifically, like like you you did the uh, Samurai versus Ninja books with Nick, is it Falk or Falk? <sighs> Nicky. It's spelled yeah. Falk. Isn't it? It's well, spelled Nick, out, but it's pronounced. Let's just it. call him Nick because we can all pronounce Nick. You Nick did the the samurai ninja versus ninja books with Nick, and uh, there's all the armor stuff. But did your interest in all that uh, the, the illustrating uh, samurai armor uh, predate writing those books? And that did yeah. it influence the books, or was it the other way around? 
No, it influenced the books. Nick and I were talking about new series to come out and uh, we were having a discussion about possible areas and ninjas came up and we were talking about it. He liked history, so he thought it'd be fun to do this thing and he knew that I liked Japan. Uh, yeah. so we, we got into it that way. But prior to that happening, like when I was first starting out in illustration, um, I was lucky enough to get a couple of early childhood series which have since faded into obscurity. There's a little series called Dizzy and Friends which came out with uh, Steve Parrish Publishing many, many years yeah. ago. When my kids were just little, they're now 20. Um, and then I was, because it was, it's really hard to get into the industry, but you need practice and you need to be able to show a portfolio, I was looking for opportunities and I found that the Oshima World Handmade Picture Book Competition had just opened up to international uh, entries and it's the Oshima Picture Book Museum in Imazu City in Toyama. Uh, they, there's this wonderful picture book museum they have there and um, I entered the competition with a story called Nine Lives of Oliver uh, and I won a bronze award, which was nice. That's thought, so cool. This it's is so all right. Cool. And yeah. I got this nice certificate and lovely glass trophy, but I also got a trip to Japan out of it. Oh, the best. So they took me over. And if you go over as um, as an award recipient in Japan, I mean, they're so polite. Yeah. If you're there to receive an award, they're wonderful. <laughs> they're wonderful. And um, it sort of got me a little bit hooked, so I, I kept entering. Um, so I've ended up with a few commendations from them and then took out a prize uh, back in about 2000 and nine or ten what's been ten um which was a book called gaijin holiday gaijin is not a very polite term but it was it's like uh, foreigner i mean it? but it's, it's not a polite thing to say but i it, you do hear it all the time yeah just depending where you're traveling um but it, it was really a celebration of japanese culture uh some little bit japanese mythology with the story of momotaro which is peach boy and then uh, weaved into that was my two children traveling around Japan, just getting uh, excited by, uh, you know, sword fights in Matsumoto Castle and all this sorts of stuff. So we had, but I did it as a pop-up book, but I'd been working on a book previously, uh, which didn't go ahead. And I'd drawn all these little characters based on woodblock prints and photos from previous travel and all sorts of things of samurai and geisha and in full, full armor and, and full clothing. Uh, and I thought, oh, well, I'm going to do this pop-up book. I need to populate. I've got these hundreds of characters that I drew that didn't end up in this book. So I cut them all out and put them in my pop-up book and then won <laughs> this major, major illustration award there. And it was um, it was so lovely because when I went for the award ceremony, they said at the official speech was when they announced my, my award, they said they wished that all visitors to Japan and all the children of Japan could observe Japanese culture as deeply as I had, which I thought was oh, lovely. Oh, that's beautiful. And I talked to one of the judges about it, and I said, oh, I was just really surprised. You know, it was such an honour. And she goes, oh, well, when we were looking at your detail, uh, as you're a Western, we expected you to make mistakes. So we looked at the kimonos. You know, Traditionally, you know, you would do them right over left. Yeah. Because we're left over right. And I said, well, that's a rookie mistake. And she <laughs> goes, we look further. And we worked out that we could discern the different class of samurai and their rank just by the way you've knotted how their belts were done and the swords. Yeah. So it's because I'd worked from historic records and woodblock. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I love doing that kind of research and then just playing with it. It's also, so you, you don't underestimate 
your eye, your visual literacy. Like a lot of people, they just don't see detail. Like every, like that's one thing I try and explain to people. When you're creative, your brain works differently. That's part of how you end up in this. So you probably, your brain just absorbs information visually differently to other people in, in part because you do it all day, but just because that's the way you're wired in the first place. Hmm, probably. I think, yeah. I think you know, on an academic level, we like to talk about our visual vocabulary. Yeah. But, do, I, but I don't have, you think there's always like um, people always talk about things like everything can be learnt by anybody, but I think some things in the creative arts, it's a, it's a talent you're born with or a talent that forms when your mind is very young and your brain develops in a different way um, and cannot be taught. Do you think that with illustration? I, I do believe it's true with with comedy writing, at least, if not regular writing. I, look, I think some people always struggle to try and learn certain skills. Um, and I think that's partly because we don't either understand how we learn as individuals, so you don't understand yourself enough, or you are learning the wrong part of the process. Like if you go to a how to draw class and all they do is say, here, draw a circle here and draw this there, teaches yeah. structurally nothing about how to approach the construction of an image, you know, how to, to build an image, block it up or shape it out or do all sorts of things. If you've got the wrong conceptual approach, you only ever learn the veneer. I mean, um, when I first got my guitar, I, I wanted to learn how to play chords and strum through things. I can't read music, so I can only read tabs, so I know I'll never get deep into musical structure, but I only do it for my own fun. But... I also know when I learn a song because I don't understand some of the depth and I've taught myself and I've got my own mistakes going on, that that's limited me and how I'm going, how I'll progress. Um, and I think I can learn parts of it, but there are, are aspects of it that if I learnt them when I was much younger, mm. you know, I, they would be so ingrained into me I could build upon them. There's nothing to build upon. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's weird to think things that happened in our very early lives that made us what we are as creative people now. I mean, obviously I'm only 21, but you're very old. <laughs> I'm not 21. I'm 46. Everybody listening. <laughs> All right. Okay. We keep, what else? I've got a list of things here to talk to you. There's a lot of stuff here about what, what is it like working with Nick? <laughs> so just so you know, people at home, like you've, you've obviously worked with a bunch of different um, authors and, and book writers, but um, Nick is a bit of a character. When I first met Tony, like it wasn't with Nick, but but Tony, me, Tony and Nick have taught a lot. Nick is really loud and he's really English and he sweats a lot, but he's really smart and intelligent and interesting. But he, he's just like a force. Of, he's like a Marvel character, but in real life. <laughs> Let's, let's with, try. But with no superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> no superpowers and, and very little self-awareness. Well, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe the superpower of talking loudly. Um, <laughs> so what's it, just like the process of like, do you come up with the ideas and then say, Nick, write a book? Does he come up with ideas? Do you get together and brainstorm? Obviously, he's living in England now, so that makes it a little bit more challenging. Yeah, we, but, so explain that process. We've, we've not collaborated recently. Uh, we have had a few communications. Um, the process was generally to start with he had a story and he needed an illustrator and then we talked about it. And then in his very English way, it's like, oh, well done you, bravo, bravo. Good <laughs> good on you, good, jolly good show. You know, and he 
comes through and he loves what you do and then he gets all excited. But he's very aware of the fact that his talent is in storytelling with mm. words. And also, he's he's pretty phenomenal in front of a crowd. He's, his he's, books are like cornettos. There are no boring bits. That's right. It's good all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but so Nick and I sort of ended up, the first couple of books when we were starting to work together, it was very much, here's the story, do the drawings and then, you know, I don't think Nick will listen to this, so I can say this. I would then go to the publisher and say, to the publisher, there's a slight problem with the story here. And basically, <laughs> yeah, sure, we'll try and talk to Nick. And they'd go and edit to Nick. And then I'd hear back about a week later, ah, oh, Tony, I've been talking to the publisher and we think there might be a slight problem with the story structure here. Like, oh, no, I'll have to change the drawings then. Oh, here we go. Done it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit of an ebb and flow. But as we moved forward, it became very much a collaboration. And it, I love working in collaboration. I've, I'm working with um, Philip Gwynn at the moment on another book series, or another book, not a book series, another book. Uh, it's my second book with him, and I love the collaborative process. So with Nick, it's um, so we we are very envious about the fact that whenever we go to a festival, there would be a you know a line of people in front of Jackie Harvey and you, of, yeah. and there'd be all these girls that that wanted books and we'd have like half a dozen boys picking their nose in front of us. <laughs> uh, boys don't buy books at the same rate as girls and my we were sort of categorised as the people that wrote um, boy books boy books for reluctant readers, which is fine. I think it's a really great space and I don't think of them as boy books. But I remember we decided to pitch, we were going, oh, let's get around this, let's get our brains around this. So he got his brain working, I got mine, and we came up with, uh, the story of Mira the Mermaid. We had this whole story. It was great. And Mira was facing this problem of, you know, um, subprime real estate underwater and um, <laughs> tyrannical rule from the from the land dwellers coming down stealing things. And we had this great story. It's, I think it's fantastic. But we submitted it to the publisher and we waited around for um, a little while. And I remember I was sitting in the studio drawing and he was obviously at home and an email pinged through and it came through from the publisher that basically said, uh, thanks, guys, for your latest story, but we really don't see this being a good fit for you because this Ugh. is very different from the type of work we, we see you guys doing. Uh, uh, thanks again. Uh, that's great. <laughs> so not this time. So it, I got a memo. It's heartbreaking, by the way. I don't know if that sounds heartbreaking to you at home, but it is heartbreaking. And you probably look at me and Tony and you think, oh, they're wildly successful. And we are. But we still get kicked in the nuts by publishers periodically and sometimes way too periodically. You've got to remember that was, whilst not three to six months of constant work, that was three to six months of that project being alive in my mind. And yeah. And you that, fall in love with the characters. And it's like, yeah. you know, having five of your children just drop dead suddenly because you're not going to get to spend time with them anymore because yeah. someone else is, thinks... Oh, no, that, oh, anyway, we're not going to get into oh, ugly metaphors on this podcast, but there's ugly metaphors in my mind. But what, what we ended up doing, because we were there when it pinged through, he shot me an email like literally 30 seconds after the email came through and I read it. He goes, did you see that email? I said, yes, I did. He goes, hang on, I'll call you. He calls me. He goes, right, let's shoot him one back as fast as we can. <laughs> uh, what are we going to do? Uh, well, I like history and travel and you like drawing those weird inventions and things that you did in... Uh, Billy's a dragon. How about we do a time travel story about these characters that travel back in time after solved everyday problems? And literally within five minutes, we brainstormed an idea. I said, right, he goes, give me 20 minutes. 
20 minutes later, he shot through um, the synopsis for the first two books and a little introduction, a couple of paragraphs. I'd drawn a couple of characters. He sent them through to me. I scanned them into a document. We sent them back to the publisher. So it would have been half an hour after getting the rejection letter. Yeah. And then she was obviously sitting there, opened it up and said, ah, that's great. Yeah, we can do a two-book deal on that one. <laughs> we got a two-book deal within an hour. The irony is I, at the same time, sitting in this office, I had a bunch of pitches, and one of my pitches was some time travel. They time traveled in a toilet like a dunny, and it was Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, um, I can't remember who else, oh, one, of, one of Genghis Khan's kids, and I had it all worked out. I'd even written the first five chapters. I pitched it, and they're like, oh, no, Nick and Tony have already pitched something. It's too similar. Boom. <laughs> one in the nuts for Sprat. Woohoo, we won. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, and that but was you, how, that's how you, um, I did the pesky kids instead. And you know, like you just move on with your life. I mean, that's there, there is a lot of rejection. It's part of the business. And you can't just say, oh well, I've been rejected. That's it. I'm gonna go and get a job. Like none of us want real jobs. <laughs> I got it. Like I'm working on a project at the moment. So I'm, I mentioned earlier Schumer Pitchbook Museum. My first book, Oliver, The Nine Lives of Oliver, and that was like 20 years ago, <laughs> I suppose now. Uh, when I first pitched, when I first got that book, I tried to pitch to publishers and they didn't like it because it didn't work as a pitcher book by itself. And it's been alive in my head for so long, but I'm now working on a couple of proposals for these sort of new wonderful books that uh, I can't talk too much about, but I would say that I'm still working on that idea. So yeah, that yeah. idea from 20 years ago was still alive. And I've broken it up and let it percolate and changed it and moved it around. But it's like you get rejections, but it doesn't mean that the corner of the idea wasn't good. Exactly. I know. You, yeah, you get to reuse things. And sometimes you just reuse it as a minor character or you totally reinvent it. I mean, the Nanny Pickens was my first book. I had that written on my whiteboard on my office wall. I had like a list of projects I wanted to pursue and it was about the fifth thing on the list. And I pursued them in order. So it was like four years before I got to Nanny Piggins. And the other three, I can't even remember what they are. So that's just what the way it is. You know, it's part of the creative process is sometimes you're disappointed and things get rejected. And really, it's a mistake. They've made a terrible mistake. But you just, you can't just give up. No. And eventually, someone's going to discover that wonderful book about the time traveling toilet. Maybe you should. Maybe you should collaborate with it with an illustrator that knows how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be that if you when you spun the toilet paper roll, you went further <laughs> further back in history. Oh, it was going to be so good, and Queen Elizabeth was going to be so angry. And anyway, uh, it'll 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 happen eventually. I ended up writing a book about Hamlet, so that's gonna that's what that's something that's coming up soon. But that's like a for older kids. Anyway, let's wrap in the plugs now. What are you working on now? What do you need to talk about? What do you does your do your publishers and everything want you to be plugging? Plug, plug away. <laughs> uh, well, the last two books were um, this old thing, which was mm-hmm. uh, an Anzac Day story, uh, which was um, sort of split time set between present day and uh, nineteen eighteen, mm-hmm. and that was sort of fun, full on picture book. Uh, then prior to that, I did uh, Advanced Australia Fair, as you mentioned in the opening, which of course features. Um, actually, both of them feature my Triumph motorcycle, but uh-huh. uh, Australia Fair features the yellow beetle. I don't know if that makes a tax deduction, but 
Definitely. I might need to build a whole series around it. Um, but I'm currently working on a book with um, Philip Quinn. So we did a, a book together a couple of years ago called Small Town. And our new book is called Grandma's First Tattoo. Oh, that's very cool. I had a fan in Tasmania who got a tattoo for every decade she was alive. Wow. And, um, yeah, sadly she passed away last year. But, yeah, she got up to, like, she had seven tattoos and she'd send me yeah. photos of them. She was a big Friday Barnes fan. <laughs> no, I had, um, so Grandma's First Tattoo is a really fun story. It's about... Um, a young girl that goes to school at show and tell. So, yes, yeah, like my hand shoots up at show and tell. Someone got some news. Yes, I shoot my hand up. Um, uh, my grandma's coming back from Bali. She's got a first tattoo. And it's like, oh, I think I could be in trouble, but I think it, it, I know it will be fine. The teacher says, I bet your grandma's body art isn't as beautiful as mine. <laughs> even reveals her sleeve tat. And from then on, it's the kids trying to guess what the tat's going to be. So they're just yeah. going through different guesses. But some of them relate to the cultural reasons why we have tattoos. Some relate to sort of fun fun sort of pop culture uh, and some sort of more significant reasons. So it sort of weaves in behind that in this sort of fun, really traditional picture book type thing, but all about tattoos. The fascinating thing about it is um, Philip and I went to all our respective publishers because I've now worked for about five and he's worked yeah. for somewhere and there's a little overlap. And the constant refrain kept coming back was it's a really nice idea, but we can't do a book about tattoos. Yeah, because you're going to encourage kids to get tattoos. Which is not what the book's about because I remember going into... Um, Just so you know, listening at home, because I've written a lot of television as well as books, there's a there's a thing called emulative behaviour, which means if you demonstrate something, children will copy it. And no matter how much you don't want them to or explain they shouldn't, they always will copy it. <laughs> so yeah. but, now given... The time we live in and the fact that if you walk around the streets, tattoos are prevalent and lots of people have tattoos and parents and grandmas have tattoos. Yeah. And I remember going into schools in Western Sydney where there was um, uh, some own kids being teased by someone who was another kid because their mum had facial macros and stuff. And they didn't yeah, know yeah. On. So this book's about a conversation about why we have tattoos, not about go and get tattoos, kids. Um, so it's really interesting, but as a result, um, Philip and I felt so passionately about it that we are now entering the world of self-published author, illustrator. Oh, good for you. That's very cool. But we're doing it as uh, this book is going to look as slick and professional as anything that's out there. And every bookseller I show it to just goes, wow, that's fantastic. We will yeah. get some. And some of the illustrations you'll see on my Instagram and stuff are from that that series. And they're going to be you know, visually very striking because there's a lot of negative space used and um Pictures emerge from nothingness to become the tattoo because when you get a tattoo, that's part of the process. And yeah, so so if you're listening at home and you wonder what Tony means by negative space, is this correct, Tony? Like when you – Tony's done – he's also – another thing he has done that he's won awards for is, is street art, like chalk art. So then if you're doing a bitumen street, you use the black and the white sort of in reverse to what you would normally do with an illustration. So when you use, say, negative space with tattoos, it's a similar sort of idea. Yeah, it is a very similar idea. So I, I bought that theme through the design of all of all the page illustrations and how it's all going to come together. And it was kind of funny because I, uh, as a part of the process, I got my first tattoo. Really? Well, because you, your niece, isn't it, is a tattoo artist, like like an emphasis on the word artist, like a beautiful artist. Oh, he's yeah. going to show me his tattoo. I, now. It I better not be you. on your butt, Tony. <laughs> it is, but, 
I'll just put down my pants. <laughs> oh, it's one of its it's one of its Japanese cats. It's a cat wearing a kimono with cherry with that cherry one. blossom. And what's she thinking of? What's in what's in the, the thought bubble? She's thinking of fish. Because <laughs> of course Japanese and goldfish. So she's thinking of fish. She's thinking of fish. There's the old cat. So is, is, um, is that an illustration of your cat? Because you have a very angry looking cat, don't you? That, that is my grumpy looking cat. Because Hannah uh comes and stays here and she stays in the studio when she's visiting from the UK. And uh she loves my cats and my dogs. Yeah. So one one day one night you got really drunk and you woke up and you had a tattoo of a cat on your arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I just really I like the idea of getting one of Hannah's tattoos. And I just said to her, uh, I'd like a tattoo. You can design it. And she goes, okay, uh, any themes? And I said, well, I was going to get my dog. And she'd done a beautiful drawing of my dog, Freya. But it would have gone from my shoulder down to my arm, which wasn't a problem. Except she said, uh, Uncle Tony, it's uh, that's about a seven to eight hour tattoo. This is your oh. tattoo. We don't know how you're going to. Hey, <laughs> and she basically told me she didn't want me crying like a big baby in the corner of the tattoo studio, embarrassing in front of all of her friends. Yeah, yeah, I get so, that. Uh, she took me in and she gave me this little one, which was four and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was on the verge of tears by the end of four and a half hours, but pretended not to be, as tough uncles do. Um, but she sort of drew it and then she goes, oh, people are going to think it's your design. Uh, but she just did it because she knew there were things that I would like. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, one of the illustrators I work with in America, his name's Dan Santat, and he got his first tattoo. He made like a pact with his publisher that if he won the Caldecott, which is like the top illustration medal in America, if he won the Caldecott, they'd both get tattoos of an illustration from his book. And he wasn't, he didn't, you know, he thought he would never win it. And so when he did, they both had to go through with it. So he's got one on his arm and she's got one on her leg. But so I thought, oh, what would I do when, when I win a big award? And um, and then, you know, I thought I'd get Nanny Piggins bungee jumping down my arm. But then it's just, it's I've never had to worry about it because I've never won a major award. <laughs> I don't write the right type of books. <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But we're creating beautiful things for kids and bringing joy, so that's the main thing. I'm All right. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm working on, on some new projects which relate to that idea of the 3D um, street chalk art, and I'm hoping to bring that to books, but it's been a process of over 10 years of developing how to adapt that to a narrative story frame, sort of frame. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping something in the next couple of years will, will be coming out in that that area. I'm doing a lot of drawings at the moment, which I can't share on social media, which is really a bummer because I do all this work I normally share. Yeah. This is I always of, just tell everybody uh, everything because I figure no one listens to me, so if they're going to steal yeah. my ideas. Someone told me the other day that on Roblox there's characters with bacon hair, and I'm like, I swear they got that from me because that's like – <laughs> Rapunzel bacon hair is a story I wrote. And it's like, surely no one else came up with the idea of people having bacon for hair. That's a weird idea, even by my standards. So, yeah, I just figure I come up with so many ideas. Like, I don't want people to steal my ideas, but if they do, what can you do? That's Soon, right. I guess. <laughs> anyway, Tony, it's been lovely talking to you. Have we covered everything? Is there anything else we should talk about? Uh, we, don't, we don't want your publisher being angry with you or me. Well, no, that's okay. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I've got a new book coming out with Walker Books soon called Scout and the Rescue Dogs. That's a little way off. Uh, and I'm in one of those weird positions where I'm sort of working on this book with Philip and I, but I'm not contracted to do any other books at the moment. 
That's very empowering. Is um, That's not empowering to have no contract, but it's empowering to write what you want to write. Like during COVID last year, I decided I was going to write this book about Hamlet and they're like, we don't want to publish a book about Hamlet. And I'm like, well, I want to write one, so I don't care because I like doing it. Sometimes that's kind of fun though, isn't it, to just do what you want? Well, it's allowed me because I have all these back burner projects and it's allowed me just to get into those. And now I'm sort of at that stage between teaching for the university and what I'm doing for with Philip and my project alone as a standalone, um, I've been to really dig into it. Now I'm starting to go back to the publishers and talking to them about this, these new series that I've developed. And um, I'm just waiting to hear back from one at the moment. And if, depending on what they say, then I'm going to open it up to a bit of a bidding war, I think. Oh, I'd love to be the subject of a bidding war. <laughs> at least I'm going to, to fantasise my head, it would be a bidding Yeah, yeah. It'll oh. really be someone going, oh, I don't know, Tony, is that right? <laughs> yeah, it'll be a bidding war and then there'll be all the awards and then I'll have to get the full sleeve tattoos for all the illustrations from all the awards. Yeah, yeah. If I, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll get matching tattoos the day that one of us sells a million books for one of our releases. Oh, oh, Tony, I'm almost at a million books, but that's no, what not in total. Release. Oh, yeah, okay, it's got to be one release. All one right, release that goes hits the million. million okay, <laughs> so when not we get a million books, we'll get tattoos. All right, yeah. okay, yeah. deal, deal. All right. <laughs> well, it's lovely to talk to you and have human contact with another person who is creative and not just one of my friends from the gym who doesn't understand what I'm complaining about. So, it's, and I hope to see you in person soon and. Kudos to you for thinking of going to Brisbane in Book Week. I can't believe that never occurred to me. <sighs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll have to we'll plan next year. What do you reckon? Perth. Yeah. Oh, Darwin. Just somewhere warm. Oh, Perth would be nice, actually. Okay. Oh, actually, there's there's one last little thought on the way out. Uh I I'm a suffering illustrator, and you know how it is being a creative person. Everyone at home is probably thinking, oh, I'd love to be an illustrator or an author, and they must have such glamorous lives. And normally we don't. <laughs> yes, I'm laughing just so you know visually what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've just been awarded a uh, residency in Paris. For, you know, oh! Oh, how do you get stuff like that? You've got to be fabulous, Rachel. You know that. Oh, I never get anything you have to apply for because when they speak to me, they find out about my personality <laughs> and they're frightened. Oh, I'm so jealous. I love Paris. I've just set a book in Paris. Friday Barnes 12 is set in Paris. You have to read it. And I, I know the, the floor plan of the Louvre inside out because of my book. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm planning to go and do some research for some book. All right. Thanks, Tony. Bye-bye. See you later.